Chapter 1 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Gauntz. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 1. The New Art of Making Plays. The great Spanish dramatist Lope de Vega once wrote a didactic poem entitled The New Art of Making Plays, and this title seems particularly applicable to the art of the drama at the present time. We are living in a progressive period, when the methods of all our practical and theoretical activities are undergoing a rapid revolution, and it is therefore not surprising that we should find the technique of the drama changing year by year before our very eyes. A few years ago, the President Emeritus of Harvard University made the somewhat startling statement that civilization had progressed faster and further in the last hundred years than in all of the preceding twenty centuries, and that the conditions of life at the close of the eighteenth century differed more from the conditions at the present day than they differed from those which appertained to ancient Rome. Similarly, it may be asserted that the art of the theatre has progressed faster and further in the last thirty years than in all of the preceding centuries that have intervened since Aeschylus, and that we find ourselves confronted at the present time with an utterly new art of making plays. In this connection it should be confessed at once that progress is not necessarily amelioration, and that there is always a possibility that a step forward may be a step away from the ideal. In some respects, the general life of ancient Athens was better than our general life today, for all its practical advantages of telephones and trolley cars. And in many respects, the drama of Sophocles and Shakespeare was better than the drama of Pinero, in spite of all our present perfectness of craftsmanship. But the student of any art should dally little with such absolute and final questions as that of what is better and what is worse and he may spend his time more profitably in the modest endeavor of defining differences. The differences between the drama of today and the drama of all preceding periods have not as yet been clearly and emphatically defined to the theater-going public, and this is the reason why many of the best artistic efforts of our current theater remain misunderstood and are denied their proper measure of appreciation. In the evolution of any art, Creation always precedes criticism, since criticism is merely an analysis of what has been created, and the main difficulty that is encountered by the best practitioners of the new art of making plays is the fact that our current dramatic criticism has not as yet caught up with them. Their new efforts are judged by old standards, and the thunderbolt, or the pigeon, or the blue bird, or what every woman knows are still considered to be something less than masterpieces, because, in both materials and methods, they differ markedly from As You Like It or Tartuffe. It is therefore desirable that we should endeavor to enumerate at least a few of the definitive features of the new art of making plays, and this purpose may be most easily fulfilled by setting forth several of the most noticeable differences between the drama of the present and the drama of the past. In the first place, we should note that, whereas the drama of other days was compounded of only two elements of narrative, namely character and action, the drama of today is compounded of three elements, 
namely action, character, and setting. Dramatic incidents which used to be conceived as happening anywhere and any when are now conceived as happening at a particular time and in a particular place. This localization of incidents in place and time may be noted in all the narrative arts as the one feature that distinguishes modern work from that of all preceding periods. In his essay on Victor Hugo's romances, Robert Louis Stevenson pointed out that the one new note introduced into the novel at the outset of the 19th century was the insistence on environment as a formative influence on character and a determining motive toward action. But the drama could not cope with this modern philosophical conception of the importance of environment until the great wave of mechanical invention which swept over the world during the middle of the nineteenth century had equipped the theatre with those appurtenances which were necessary to enable it to project the element of setting adequately to the eye. But this epoch-making revolution in the physical equipment of the stage occasioned an alteration in the very essence of the drama. In all former ages the drama had made its appeal primarily to the ear, like the arts of poetry and music, but now for the first time it was enabled to make its appeal directly to the eye, like the arts of painting and sculpture. In our own days the art of the drama has ceased to be essentially an auditory art, and has ranked itself for the first time in history as a visual art. And this point must be clearly understood if we are to appreciate properly the new art of making plays. For this revolution in the basis of dramatic appeal occasioned a necessary evolution in the art of acting. Whereas acting had formerly been a presentative art, it now became a representative art. The actor had formerly attracted attention to himself, like an orator upon a platform, and always in his work had presupposed an audience. But he was now required to comport himself as if no audience were present, and to treat his particular personality as only a component part of a general stage picture. And this alteration in the art of acting required an alteration in the art of writing for the stage. For the presentative actor it was necessary to write rotund rhetorical speeches, which should give him ample opportunity for elocution and the use of sweeping gesture. But for the representative actor, it is necessary to write in the terms of common conversation. Any speech that is at all rhetorical will put the modern actor out of the picture, and will shatter that illusion of actuality which is the ultimate aim of the contemporary stage. From this consideration we derive the precept that the highest exhibition of literary tact that may be achieved by the contemporary playwright is to persuade his audience that he is not employing any trick of literary style. Formerly plays were written in verse or polished prose. Nowadays they must be written for the most part in casual, drifting colloquialisms. People do not actually talk in verse. Neither do they talk in formal prose and it has therefore become the leading literary merit of our latter-day drama to present its dialogue divested of all literary turns of phrase. Actions speak louder than words. This proverb has become an axiom of our new art of making plays. No less an authority than Mr. Augustus Thomas has asserted that every good play of the contemporary type must merely add the element of dialogue to a pantomime that is already good. The modern playwright must rely more upon his visual imagination than upon his literary skill, 
and must be able to conceive his narrative primarily as a drift of moving pictures. In this requirement he may be aided greatly by the collaboration of that new and very interesting functionary of the modern theatre, the stage director of his play. It is the business of the stage director to coordinate the contributions of the author, the actors, the designer of the scenery and costumes, and the manipulator of the lights, into an harmonious work of art. The stage director is often, in the contemporary theatre, the dominant artist of the drama, and in any critical consideration of a play that has passed through his hands, it is frequently more necessary to devote attention to his artistry than that of either the actors or the author. Any play, for instance, that has been produced by Mr. David Belasco, must be studied as a Belasco play, regardless of who wrote it or who the actors were. These alterations in the materials and methods of the drama have required in recent years a corresponding change in the construction of our theatres. So long as the drama remained an auditory art projected by a presentative actor, it could be housed effectively in an ample auditorium. But when it became a visual art exhibited by an unobtrusive actor, it called for a theatre that should gather a selected audience into intimate proximity with the stage. Hence, throughout the last thirty years, our theatres have progressively been diminished in size, until the prevailing type at present is no larger than the Maxine Elliott Theatre in New York. It is a matter of history that the promising project of the new theatre failed mainly because the edifice which housed the institution was too large to permit of the effective presentation of the prevailing type of the contemporary drama. Very recently, an exaggeration of the present tendency in theatrical construction has been evidenced by the advent of the Little Theatre, which is surely more diminutive than necessary. But this current aspect of the craft of theatre-building is one of the points that must be taken into consideration in any critical judgment of our new art of making plays. It should be evident from these brief enumerations that it is impossible to measure the contemporary drama by the same critical standards that have been applied to the dramatic art of other ages. The very merits of the Elizabethan drama become defects when we observe them from the point of view of the contemporary theatre, and the faults of other-minded periods have been erected into the virtues of our own. A new art of criticism is required to interpret our new art of making plays. As yet, our contemporary creation in the drama is more noble than the interpretation that it has received. This is the reason, doubtless, why so many well-meaning societies are organized for the uplifting of the modern stage, and why so few endeavors are instituted for the appreciation of the theater of today. But any age of the drama that is illustrated by the simultaneous activities of Pinero and Briou and Suderman and Maeterlinck and Shaw and Hauptmann and Hervieux and Galsworthy is undeniably a great age, and it is therefore the responsible and humble duty of our dramatic critics to teach the general public to estimate it at its worth. End of chapter 1